Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Branding is really, really important. In the early days, I think it's really um, overemphasized. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts, entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to create a brand after you've launched, how to gracefully market your products in other people's Facebook groups, and how they pre-launched on Product Hunt and got over 20,000 email subscribers. Today, I'm joined by Sun Lee from Morning Recovery. Morning Recovery is a science-backed breakthrough hangover drink that helps detox and counter the negative effects of alcohol. It was started in 2017 and currently based out of Los Angeles, California. Morning Recovery has made a million dollars in just their first three months, and today we're going to dive into how they did that. Welcome, CSUN. Hi, Felix. Thanks for having me. For sure. So yeah, so a million dollars in three months. Wow, that's uh, very impressive. Let's take it back to the beginning. Where did the idea originally come from? Yeah, this one's always tough because so my background prior to starting Morning Recovery was um, I was in the San Francisco doing tech work. Um, the latest before Morning Recovery was building product at Tesla. Prior to that was at Facebook. So in many ways, this is very serendipitous how I got started. And so it's very hard for me to pinpoint you know, at exactly at what point um, this even occurred um, you know, as a thing that I wanted to work on. So I think like if we sort of go back all the way to the beginning, um, I'm Canadian and uh, that's where I was uh, raised since nine. Uh, prior to that, I was born and raised in Korea and I never had a chance to go back to Korea until I was, uh, as an adult. And so two years ago in 2016, uh, that was my first chance to do so. Um, and when I went, my goal was that was my vacation, take two weeks off of Tesla, um, really explore the local scene, go, you know, go meet my old cousins and family. And then just kind of figure out what life is like as an adult over there. You know, I've heard all these kind of crazy nightlife stories in Seoul. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I couldn't fully resonate because I didn't grow up there. And so that was really the goal. But when I went there, um, the, the big thing for me that I remember was no matter what activities I did or who I hung out with, every single night we would end up <laughs> drinking. Just drinking tons and tons of soju, right? <laughs> uh, which is like the, the Korean um, version of sake. Um, and so part of that was waking up feeling terrible every single day in and day out. But the people that I drank with the locals would, would do, drink the same amount, but get up at six, seven AM, put on their suits and go to work. And then they would swear by these, these drinks that are sort of bottled in kind of like a five hour energy drink format. Um, and, and it would be called like the hangover drinks. You know, if you, if you translate it, like literally that's what the, what it would be called. And so in many ways, like, I think that's probably the start of the inspiration. Um, it took a long time until that became a thing that um, I started looking into, seeing the actual um, sort of the business opportunity, the science behind it. Because, um, you know, from that instance of Korea, I never sort of immediately uh, transitioned to, oh, I want to make my own version, or perhaps I can sell something like this in the States. But I think if I really look back, that was probably the first time that this idea and concept was uh, rooted it at the back of my head. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward a couple of months, I just remember um, in, in the States, I was sort of, um, as a consumer, um, you know, almost furious that like these products didn't exist. And so I would purchase bunch over from overseas from Korea, and then I would use them as a consumer. And then over time, you know, just naturally, I would give it out to friends and family, I would consume it on my own. And then I would get a lot of these common questions like, Oh, it works really well. Where did you get it? How did you get it? How does it work? Same questions that I had as a consumer. And so I think that led to me starting to research. And this was in early 2017. That's how I stumbled across some of the uh, white papers published by Dr. Liang. Uh, at the time when she published, she was a PhD student at UCLA. That's how we got to know each other. And then one thing led to another. Um, that's when we kind of realized that we like working with each other. Uh, we like each other's company. And maybe there's something that here where, you know, we, we could potentially work together. And so a couple of months doing, of doing this uh, towards the summer of last uh, 2017, uh, it just grew really, really quickly. When we had the concept and some of the samples, uh, we got launched and featured on Product Hunt. That's when we had over 20,000 uh, subscribers join us requesting free samples. 
uh, and that escalated to us actually trying to um, produce this at scale to see if people would buy it through Indiegogo, which is when we first launched our company and brand in July. Uh, and when that raised, and when when that campaign raised two hundred fifty thousand dollars in three weeks, uh, I think after that everything was just sort of um, very organic. We just kind of followed the demand. So thank you for that for that that, that story. I think um, it's very inspirational. Where you discover something on this on this journey of yours, where you were trying to figure out what to do with your life, and you came across this this uh, product that existed elsewhere, and you noticed that in your market in the U.S. it didn't exist, and that kind of got the wheels turning in your head. So you mentioned that you guys are featured on Product Hunt, twenty thousand subscribers. That you're saying that's twenty thousand people that signed up for your mailing list. Like what, what, what's what's the twenty thousand number? Yeah, so when we launched on ProductCon, we were we had a bunch of samples made, um, you know, with Dr. Liang at USC. When I reached out to her, since then she's moved to USC to become a adjunct professor, and we just needed more people to give this to. We already, you know, surpassed the the beta testing amongst our friends and family, uh, which is inherently biased, and so we wanted to give to people that, you know, we didn't have um, close degrees of uh, connection with, and so which are strangers. And so we created a website where people could enter in their mailing address and we would simply ship it out to them, a free sample. Uh, and that was what, uh, and that listing is surplus 20,000. Wow. Okay. So on Product Hunt, for anyone out there that's not familiar with it, can you say a little bit more about what is the Product Hunt website and how it works? Yeah. So Product Hunt in many ways, it's like Reddit for startups. It's a forum where you can introduce new products and new ideas. Um, and the, the way it works is that every day, um, the viewers and the audience would upvote it um, so that you can increase your visibility, discoverability, and that based on that, get people's feedback. Um, and so the interesting thing for us is that we didn't even actually post on Product Hunt. It's one of our friends who picked it up because we launched a website where we wanted to collect people's mailing address. He thought this would be really good for Product Hunt. Um, I don't think he knew it either, and we certainly didn't know, but we definitely went uh, super viral from this. I think part of it is because generally um, in, with product kind, some of the products are uh, really focused on software and internet. And so, you know, all of a sudden when you have a drink like ours, it's very unique. So I think that probably got a lot of people's attention, which was to our advantage. Right. So what did the uh, product con listing say? Like what, what, what did it say on that listing that made people interested in clicking over to, to the website? Like how, how do you design? Well, I guess it wasn't you that, that created, but what do you think goes into a good listing or a good post on product hunt? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, I'm reasoning in hindsight, you know, it's not like we've done a bunch of experimentation mm -hmm. We posted and it did well. So it, this is just my assumption, but generally I mean, as as thing with as with anything, um, when you're in a sea of multiple, um, in this case, like you know, you're competing against other postings, you have to have a pretty compelling story that's captivating. Um, I think we just had that advantage of uh, out of everyone who looks very similar, which is everything is around some kind of usually consumer related internet or software based product. Uh, ours was a physical drink, and so we probably stood out. And then the story itself was usually a lot of the times. Um, you know, founders are very passionate about the product they're working on. They've worked on it for a long time versus ours to, in many ways, it was very random because, you know, I was building probably similar products that, that is very common with, uh, what's featured on product con, which is, you know, when I worked at Facebook, when I built some of the referral apps at Tesla, these are things that I can relate with. And all of a sudden here I am as the founder of morning recovery, it's completely unrelated and it's based on my story of visiting Korea. So I think that was probably a little quirky, probably a little funny. Um, so I think it's a combination of all of it, which is, do you have a compelling story that, that sort of uh, gets people's attention? And I think after that, um, you know, it, it, the actual upvoting and success is, you know, really up to the product itself. So once people go to your website um, and they view it and it's compelling, the value prop is there. Yeah, I think they'll support you. Okay, so you're the what you're saying is that you have to stand out from what everyone else is doing, and in your case, you had a product which is different than what the other website, what the other posts on the website were, were offering. They were offering more like software. Yours was was a drink, was a physical product, and you also had a compelling story, which was something that seemed to be lacking in the, the other posts that there were on the website. So people were, were saw your product on Product Hunt, they clicked over to your website. What did the website say to 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 incur, to collect twenty thousand emails? It was actually a super simple website that we, so we didn't even custom, custom build it. I mean, I guess we did, but we used um, Squarespace, which is, I guess, 
competitor of Shopify. We now use Shopify. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something that we can use very quickly to uh, mock up a website. So it's a single landing page. You would simply scroll down. We had really three things, key messages that we wanted to tell people. One was, um, we're launching this new thing and we want you to try it and give us the raw feedback and it's completely free. I mean, that was the main thing. Um, second thing is we wanted to explain our science behind this. The thing that was a little bit different from us versus um, competitor, um, similar products in Korea was that the reason why we worked with Dr. Liang um, was we found, we, we found out very quickly that how you improve the efficacy of a product like this uh, has a lot to do with the actual intellectual property on how do you extract, uh, in this case, you know, certain plants and certain roots, how do you process it so that you can maximize the efficacy uh, and, and control things like bioavailability. So we knew that what we were building, while it's the same concept as what's sold in Korea, it was very unique. And so we really wanted to highlight it, which is here's actually how the science works. Here's why ours is superior to different competitors. And by the time we launched on Product Hunt, even though this wasn't a big category in the States you know, versus Korea, uh, we soon found out there were actually a lot of competitors out there. So we really wanted to stand out. And for us, the biggest value prop was you know, aside from branding, pricing, distribution, all of that, which we didn't have at the time because it was just samples, um, we wanted to help people understand in a very simplified way uh, what the science was. So I think that's the second thing. Um, yeah, and then the third thing is just, you know, by the nature of design, uh, optimizing it so that, you know, we, we want as many people to give us their mailing address as possible because our goal here um, was to get as much samples sent out as possible so that we could get uh, real feedback. And so website, um, it's, it's no longer, you know, live now, but you can imagine it's, it's just a single, um, big landing page with big call to action about samples with one small diagram of very simplified science. Um, and then a giant button for you to sort of, uh, subscribe with the, with the form to enter your mailing address. And then that was it. And then, you know, we didn't really have a big follow up. Probably people had no idea how this was going to work, like when we were going to give it to you. Um, the mailing address, once you submitted it, went to Google, uh, spreadsheet that spreadsheet that we had. And then, um, yeah, we just basically followed up and just started sending samples out. Okay. So 20,000 emails. Did you have 20,000 free samples to give out? No, no, we actually had about a thousand. And so it was definitely overwhelming. Uh, we were pretty freaked out. Um, one was, uh, we reached out to you know, the sample recipients after the, once we depleted our samples, basically telling them, Hey, we ran out of it. A lot of people actually were offended by it because they thought this was like a marketing Mm -hmm. campaign done by a brand, you know, like, Hey, here's free samples, but Hey, actually we don't have samples. We just wanted your mailing address and email address. Um, but yeah, it, it is what it is. We definitely underestimated the, the demand we could have gotten. Um, but the good thing is, we wanted to figure out, okay, what do we do with these other subscribers? Because they're obviously interested in us. And just because we don't have samples, we don't want to alienate them. And so initially our plan with sample giveaways was we had some structured surveys that people can um, subscribe to and, and fill out. But instead, we created a Facebook group, uh, which is still live today with active 2,000 members. Um, and the group was called Morning Recovery Feedback Group. And we asked our 1,000 subscribers. Um, sample recipients to just simply join this group and give us an open, open-ended, um, real feedback. And then we let the rest of the subscribers who didn't get the samples, uh, be aware of this group so that at least they could join and then read and hear about, uh, what other strangers had to say about it. And so, um, in that way, we sort of started creating this community where half of it was like, you know, real, uh, customers. The other half were just people just interested in what people had to say about it. Um, and which was really powerful because that community sort of uh, ended up really helping us drive our Indiegogo campaign later on. I love that. I love that you're able to to create this community, and then they're just essentially creating a lot of content for you by with the, with these discussions. And then people that are not never got the product or didn't get the product yet because they weren't part of that first one thousand, they're at least able to get an idea of what it's like from from like you're saying a stranger, someone that's unbiased in their in their in their feedback. So on, on the Facebook group, how did you manage the the feedback? Because like you said, it's all open kind of format, and I'm sure you're getting tons of different things. How did you collect all this data? and make use of it? Yeah, I mean, it was very qualitative. And, you know, the thing with sample recipient is that even though it's a verbal contract, I'm giving this to you so you can give me real feedback, the conversion is 100%, right? So out of 1,000 people we gave, mm-hmm. we ended up getting about 250 actually written posts about them, which we thought was still pretty high. Yeah. Uh, 
And so, yeah, it was a very open feedback. People would write about it. Not every, not everyone had good things to say, but overwhelming, overwhelmingly, it was very positive. Like 90% plus would say really good things. Other people would say, oh, it didn't work. Um, but the, but we also had a control group of placebo, at least that we tested with our friends and families so that we can sort of understand, okay, well, what is the baseline of placebo? Because with any product like this, uh, even if it actually works at the scientific level, people won't report it 100%. Um, and so it was, it was super qualitative and we wanted to just understand, um, you know, like I think we, with anything qualitative, we can only make sort of large, uh, only draw sort of very clear, uh, clear and pattern conclusions. If it was very, very mixed reviews, um, you know, there's not much we can draw out of it, but we wanted to see, hey, is this like overwhelmingly people are saying very positive things about it, especially under efficacy. Um, you know, of, of course, people had some other thoughts on the, the taste as well and, and things that are um, a little bit secondary. Um, but generally, you know, when we sort of did the math and went through every every post and sort of ranked whether this was like highly positive, neutral or like negative, uh, and it was sort of 90% plus highly positive. Uh, we kind of drew um, the conclusion that, hey, it worked. And the reason why we wanted to get people's feedback in the in the first place anyways is because prior to this, we already tested it amongst ourselves. Uh, we knew the science of it, which is something that we study on the, on the mice level at USC. So you can measure things like uh, what's called GABA potentiation uh, in, in the in the brains of, of the mice uh, and then the breakdown of acetaldehyde, which then you can transfer uh, to sort of extrapolate how that would be done on a humans. But not only that, like we tested it in ourselves, we gave it to our friends and family. So we, we had a huge conviction that, Hey, this like really, really works. But the, the giving to strangers at a, at a sort of a higher scale sample for us was just to, just to say, okay, hold up. Um, we could also be very biased because we want this to work. Let's just see and make sure that this is true when we scale this to like hundred and thousand samples. Uh, and so it was more of a, uh, validation. And so if we saw that, you know, uh, less than 80% of the people said very positive things, I think then we would have so, sort of said, okay, well, hold on, like, there's something here, maybe it's not working for everyone, why? Let's let's figure out uh, what to do next. And so that was a type of um, the data that we wanted to collect. But, you know, once we found that it was very positive, we went, we then went very quickly into um, producing this and launching it on Indiegogo. Got it. So you are looking to get that kind of validation to see if you're on the right track. You weren't necessarily looking for individual features or individual uh, changes that the, the customers wanted, unless you saw it overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly in the comments or in the feedback. You're just trying to see, is this something that we should invest our time and money into? And you recognize that when you saw that 90% of the comments were, were positive and then you decided to move forward. So what was the next step? Like, how did you, once you guys recognize, okay, everyone's saying, for the most part, saying great things about this is move forward how did you guys spend your time moving forward yeah i think the difficult part especially for me building some building something like this even though it's a functional beverage um you know it is a brand it is a lifestyle brand um that you know the goal is that uh, with with mass appeal um is that unlike tech we can't really iterate like i'm not building a website or app where i simply launch a b test quickly figure out what works and what doesn't like this is an edible edible product and you have to do it uh, get it right uh, especially because of the you know safety of consumers and so the difficult part was we wanted to launch really quickly but then you have all these questions like okay what's the right pricing what's the right flavor what's the right amount like is it 100 milliliter which we ended up doing should we do more um what does the packaging look like and these things were really hard because we couldn't simultaneously launch digitally and get people's feedback yeah we can do some samples and surveys digitally and get people's feedback. Ultimately, we had to pick and choose, um, you know, with sort of some proxy data and then live with it and then know that, okay, at some point in the future, we can change it, but it, we, won't, we won't be able to iterate quickly. So I think we just started deciding um, what is like the most important thing here that we just have to get right and what are other things where if we make assumptions and we get it wrong, it's still okay for us to move forward. Uh, and for us, that was efficacy, which is what we were trying to test with the um, sample program. Um, ultimately, we knew that the value prop of this was very um, sort of one dimensional, uh, which is it helps you when you consume tons of alcohol so that the next morning you can get back on your feet and, and do more of what you love. And so if we knew that that problem was solved, other things like taste, um, pricing, you know, the, the branding, the packaging, we, th we at least thought, at least I did, you know, especially with an engineering mindset, we thought they were less 
relevant. So in many, and, and we were we were wrong for many reasons because you know obviously branding is very critical. Uh, but we sort of launched really really fast. We basically said forget about all of it. Like, of course, like we will use our gut feeling, and you know we hope they were ballpark right. Uh, we picked peach flavor. You know the question becomes why peach flavor out of so many when when brands who introduce beverages take six months just to do. Um, just to optimize the flavoring, I picked it because I like peach. Like it was like very simple, you know. Uh, I kind of thought, okay, I don't care about this as long as it's not too bitter, and as long as I like it, I think most people will like it, etc. And so I think it was a lot of it was just sort of ignorance on my end uh, because I focused purely on the science and efficacy. And so uh, when I when I had sort of full conviction with the validation of samples, uh, we just went on and went to launch this. So all these other things, very simple. We pick glass bottles. Because uh, at the time we were working with co-packers in Korea, and those type of glass bottles in Korea is sort of the most used um, commodity, and so we would get it for about one cent per bottle. So it's super cheap. Why not? Let's use it. So that kind of reasoning. Um, and the thing that took us time to launch it was just more on the regulatory stuff, which is sure, like we can decide what to print, what the label would be, what the packaging is, what the flavor is, um, but we have to make sure that when we sell it as as a product in the U.S. Um, we have we're regulated as a dietary supplement. There are some rules to follow. Certain different places, um, you know, different factories that you have to, you can work with versus you cannot. And so that was all new to me. So that took about three months for us to get it right. And then um, once we thought, okay, we know what we're doing in terms of when we sell this, this is safe for consumers, and um, it's compliant, you know, with the regulations uh, within the U.S. We're good to go, and so that was in July. So we launched. We then launched the um, Indigo campaign in July. How, how did you make sure you were compliant? Did you have to work with anyone to, to to help you understand that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we work with attorneys, um, our own consultants. Um, basically, that's the way we did it. Yeah. Got it. And if someone out there wants to go on the same path, like how do you recommend they find experts to, to help them out with with the uh, the regulations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's sort of we look at it in a tier system. Uh, like it, it's costly. Like, um, you know, when you work with lawyers, um, I think with a kind of an industry, you're paying them by the hour, um, and, and it's cash. And so, I think like for, and 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 that's a barrier to entry. But when you're talking about creating a physical good that's that's for consumption, like there really isn't an alternative path. Like you can't hack your way, right? Which is another thing that. Uh, was difficult for me to wrap my head around, which is this isn't as simple as building MVP and launching something digitally. Like you are creating something that people would take. If you if you're trying to hack your way and speed that up, um, I I don't think that's a good idea. And so my my advice is like, um, if you don't know the regulations, um, there's some stuff that you can do to help yourself by just simply reading and learning, and and then you can sort of ask the right questions with the attorneys to save some time and you know save some cash. But ultimately. I think you do have to rely on experts to make sure that this is perfectly compliant and safe. Uh, it just comes down to when do you do this? You know, we could have done this earlier on, um, but I think that would have been a waste of money. We we did it when we sort of had, um, you know, the real demand behind this, even though it was samples, the real community behind it to kind of know that, okay, we know that when we launch this, there's some lower sort of boundary of people who would end up buying, you know, because that's the community that we've been interviewing and asking and they're behind us. And so when we kind of had that belief that there is there is demand out there, uh, it made things easy for us to, you know, drop some money to uh, this going. I mean, I, I think we ended up paying like $30,000 in that three months, which was quite a bit for, um, you know, a, a project at the time. Yeah, which is $10,000 a month. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's de- definitely a, a big risk. But like you're saying, because you have that community that you built already, and yet there's 20,000 emails, and recognize that there was some kind of interest, some kind of demand in the marketplace, you de-risk yourself by by at least putting up that putting that that upfront work in. So you you mentioned that you you there are some important questions you have to ask these experts. Do you remember any imp- important questions? Like what are some of the most important questions you should be asking experts that you're working with when you are interested in releasing some kind of food or beverage product? Product. Yeah, I mean, I think for someone like me who's never done this, um, it was just about understanding the whole thing end to end. Um, in terms of starting from like, why are you being regulated? Like, uh, 
you know, and then and then kind of going into which category do we do are, are we being regulated under? Like food and beverage is different, dietary supplement, which is different from pharmaceuticals. Um, and you got to make a deliberate choice on which route you want to take. Like for us, we could have taken the pharmaceutical um, approach, but there is uh, much more downside in our opinion um, than going into a dietary supplement. Uh, but when you choose your path, like it also limits some some of the things you can uh, you can do and advertise. As by being a dietary supplement, we cannot make um, claims like you know this solves um, hangovers, for example, hundred percent, because then it would be sort of classified as a drug. And so there are some downsides and upsides. So you need to just like fully understand that. And that's more on the compliance side. So I think it's just like understanding from the FDA, uh, I guess in Canada, it would be Health Canada. But in the US, um, what are they looking for? Why? And once you sort of understand that, um, subsequently, when you work when you work on uh, different products or new releases, uh, it makes things just much more simpler. Got it. So now you, you then launched on Indiegogo. What made you choose Indiegogo as the crowdfunding uh, platform? You know, like this is the first time I'm actually making this very public. Um, but I, I hopefully uh, this is a fun story for you know anybody who wants to launch their own product. We were going to use Kickstarter from the very beginning just because that was a bigger brand. And you know, you can you can use a launch in any platform on your own, but we thought based on sort of uh, the community that we had, we then got uh, features on Business Insider. We thought we sort of we could demand. Um, an account manager in, in Kickstarter to help us, uh, really guide us. So we reached out to them and we soon realized that Kickstarter actually doesn't support dietary supplements. Uh, it's just like based on um, sort of their risk profile. It's not something that they're willing to sort of um, support under form. We found out like three days before we were supposed to launch. Um, and we never told people where we were going to launch. Actually, it was part of a sort of we, we just wanted to let them know that it's launching we didn't, without telling them where. Uh, which ended up being in our favor because we found out three days ago we couldn't launch. And so we then knew that the only option we had was Indiegogo. Um, but what's really funny is that we then reached out to an account manager at Indiegogo and sort of made this like bold uh, bold stance where we said, hey, in three days we're launching on Kickstarters um, because they're bigger and they're going to give us more reach than Indiegogo. But like, can you, can you like convince us um, why we should choose you guys mm -hmm. them uh, and then they gave us a bunch of amazing promos uh, put us on the front page gave us two email shout outs um, gave us a discount in the fees that we have to pay them but like we had no choice we were only gonna go with indiegogo um, but we try to leverage as much as we can get and then uh, we got it thankfully they didn't i guess realize that we weren't allowed on kickstarter and so um, we sort of made it seem like we made the last minute change. We launched with Indiegogo, but ended up getting all these perks because um, they were, you know, ultimately for them, they're losing um, key clients to um, Kickstarter and they wanted to give them sort of more promos. And so uh, we, on top of getting that, uh, we were able to launch an Indiegogo um, on time. Wow, very very bold, but certainly paid off. What, what did you What did you have? What did you guys bring to the table that made them say to 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 go after you so aggressively? Yeah, I mean, for me, what we found out was that a lot of it is just like an existing uh, customer base. Um, what What the account manager on both sides actually told us in the beginning was that the success of your campaign is gonna really really come down to the first sort of twenty four hours, and after that. It's just this virtual cycle where if you do really well, you get more visibility in the platform. Um, and then people who, who view it, if, if they, they like to back products that's already trending and has the most likelihood to being uh, successfully funded, so it, it all makes sense. And so the question becomes, well, it's a chicken and egg problem. Like, how do you get it off the ground in the beginning? Um, and it just comes down to your existing customer base. If you have a large email base of people that are already interested in you, um, and then you can sort of uh, blast them an email, let them know your existing community, and they kind of come in, even if it's a small amount, and sort of uh, uplift that campaign in the beginning. Um, that's going to drive a lot. And so uh, we kind of came in with, you know, I mentioned we had 20,000 email subscribers, but that was like just like the first kind of week when Protocon launched. In the following subsequent months uh, leading up to Kickstarter or Indiegogo, we had about 60,000 email subscribers. And so uh, I think that really got their attention. Uh, and by that time, they've, some of them already knew about us, like because they were familiar with Product Hunt. Um, they saw our article on Business Insider. So uh, I think that's their proxy to figuring out if this is going to be successful or not, which is 
um, you know, how much sort of existing hype do they have and how can they leverage that to bring in early co uh, consumers in the very beginning, beginning stages of the campaign. Wow, so you guys grew your email list by three times between that initial product on launch and then the Google campaign. What, what were you doing during that time to continue to grow that email list? Yeah, I mean, part of it was um, sort of rooted back to product hunt. So once product hunt um, did really well and we got the early uh, customers, um, then we got then picked up by other other press and media outlets. Uncrate, you know, which is sort of that mm -hmm. um, highly engaged but very niche, um, you know, journal that that discloses new products. Um, they picked us up because they saw us on Product Hunt, and from there we got a whole bunch. And so it was sort of these like discrete, um, not sort of continuous or any kind of exponential growth, but rather Product Hunt started, and then Uncrate picked us up. And then Business Insider picked us up. So between those three, we definitely got mm -hmm. huge volume of traffic. And it was all driven driving to the same landing page. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And did you did you pitch them or did they just find you through product comic? How were you able to get on these big publications? Yeah. Uh, well, business they all reached out to us. Uncrate they just picked us up and then wrote about us. Uh, business Insider reached out to us. We did an interview and then um, they featured us. And so I think just everything goes down to um, product hunt, really. That's really what sparked it all. Um, and then we definitely leveraged on our story, which we thought was um, pretty unique. Um, you know, there, it's kind of cliche working in Silicon Valley where this was a small side project, but everyone viewed this as a niche like biotech stealth company, <laughs> which that was hilarious. Um, but we, yeah, we, we leveraged it and uh, we went along with it. And then uh, part of the reason why I think product kind is successful, which, you know, I didn't touch on is we didn't know who our demographics, like customers were. We had some ideas, but like, this is the first time we're even giving samples away at, at scale. We didn't know who to, who to sort of target. Um, but it ended up like Silicon Valley was perfect. These guys were people with high disposable income who work really, really hard. Um, and they also like to go out Party, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, just go back and be productive. And then, and like it's very similar to like probably profile at Shopify, right? People working at Shopify, and then uh, not only that, I think people could probably resonate because um, I was from Silicon Valley, and um, you know I worked at uh, companies that they're very familiar with. So um, I think it, it it all sort of tied together. Yeah, I think you know your kind of success is, is certainly hard to to achieve with that initial boost and then the subsequent. Uh, big publications, but I think the 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 kind of lesson here is the same, which is to focus your attention on getting some kind of attention on on one platform and then leverage that. And in your case, they reached out to you, but I don't see why someone out there, if they had some success on the platform and and some buzz, like I don't see why they wouldn't be able to go and just try to pitch a publication if they're not getting picked up, uh, you know, just just by publication finding them. I don't see why they wouldn't be able to go out and just try to get that get that that uh that free press. So I think that lesson is the same which is to try to find success in one place and then try to use that to to build on top of it by reaching out to these publications. Say, hey, look, we're, we're, we're buzzing. There's a lot of uh, attention here and I'm sure your, your, your readers might be interested as well and then go from there. So one thing you mentioned was that you're kind of like riding, the, you were riding this wave where people recognize you guys, almost categorize you in a certain way. And why didn't you just say, hey, no, no, that's not what we are. This is what we are and like kind of define it yourself. Like what made you guys decide, let's just go with what people are are, you know, attracted to and, and what they are uh, really uh, excited, I guess, to, to to categorize you guys as. Yeah, so I th so I'll answer that. But but the um, one thing that uh, is very very critical here is that I think you, it, whatever you're selling, like regardless of all these buzz and hype that you can get, it's all very temporary. Um, at the end of the day, I think you have to sort of deliver a very clear value prop. Uh, without it, you know, nothing really matters. And I think mm -hmm. one thing that was um, pretty compelling for us is that once we started opening up our uh, Facebook community group, um, we actually updated our website to showcase the reviews um, within the website so people can read it. It's very hard to provide an attribute of, well, how much of that created an incremental impact on people signing up for the emails. But one thing for sure is that when you have 90% plus people who try your product, taking their time to give you a review. And these reviews were not one sentences. They were literally paragraphs after paragraphs after paragraphs. Um, and they were very emotional customers saying, like, I'm a mother of two. Um, you know, they kind of went a little over beyond what we expected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think it definitely, 
has that impact. Um, they're also the ones that ended up buying Indiegogo as well. Um, so 50% of our sample recipients that we tracked by email ended up purchasing us on Indiegogo. Um, and so, you know, like how much of that versus the media exposure we got is what created the initial sort of growth. It's very hard to know. Uh, but I think without the product actually having a functional benefit um, and right. without that attention and community, I don't think um, this would have been sustainable. Um, and, and sort of going back to your uh, uh, extra question, which I forgot. <laughs> you know, I was just asking, like you, you mentioned that you guys didn't really have a clear definition of what you were initially, right? And then, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, I think the true answer is we didn't know either. We... We decided to quit our jobs. Uh, my, my co-founder was at Uber at the time. I was at Tesla. We quit our job at the end of July after Indiegogo was successful. So leading up to that, this was a side project. That's, you know, like our definition of side project obviously grew from early days to realizing that we're spending more time doing this than our actual jobs. Um, but we kind of we were curious at ourselves too. Like, what could this be? Like, what is this? Um, why do people like this? Uh, how much would they pay for? How, what should the branding be? So these were all questions that we had going into it. So, you know, if we sort of got in this angle of, oh my God, like this is a product that we want to work on and we've been um, working on it for a long time and go go with sort of very strong conviction of what it should look like, I think we would have definitely um, came out with a stronger sort of branding. Uh, and that's kind of why eight months later, post our Indiegogo, we did a rebrand update. Um, based on, okay, this is what we learned. This is who we want to be. Here's a gap and here's a rebranding. So in the early days, uh, I think it was just like generally, we didn't know what this could be either uh, mentality, but we wanted to keep it going, keep the momentum going and then see what it could be. Um, so it took some time. Got it. So real quick to cover the Indiegogo success. So you raised a quarter million dollars on there, uh, backed by almost 5,000 backers. Uh, how much of that was happening in that? Because you mentioned the first 24 hours is, is the most important. How much of that was happening in the first 24 hours? I believe we got the first like quarter of it in the first 24 hours. Okay, yeah. wow. And then from there, they, did they promote you guys right away from the, the, launch, time, the, the launch or like was it sometime later in the campaign? It was some time later in the campaign, but the when we first launched, like it's a soft launch, right? You know, Indiegogo isn't it isn't really featuring us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but it was it was crazy because I had the Indiegogo app, and you know, it it vibrates every time someone buys. But um, as soon as it launched, and we we sort of sent our email blast to you know tens of thousands of our customers, the first hour was was just ridiculous. Like the phone would vibrate so often that it just doesn't seem like it's vibrating like because there's no there's no anymore yeah it's funny the same thing with shopify where you get that first like cha-ching when you make a, a sale it's there's there's no a lot of times i hear from from merchants that there's no high that's better than that first one so after a while you get a little immune to to hearing it so you mentioned that you guys were you guys rebranded, but it almost sounded like you just were, you were creating the brand for the first time after already having a business that was selling a product. For anyone else out there that does have a business and you know, kind of just launched without a clear definition on, on what they what they represent, who they represent, like their brand. What tips do you have here? Like, how do you even begin down the process of creating a brand after you've already started your business? Yeah, I mean, I think the the core thing is, I think for any commerce, it's a trade off. Like, someone is trading their their cash for for some product or some service i guess you know doesn't have to be a real tangible product um and it just has to be super compelling so even though we didn't have a very clear definition of what this what this like, branding was it was very clear what the functional benefit was it's a hangover drink at least in the in the minds of consumers and so for for them i think the people that bought it um even if they haven't tried it uh, with all of the risk of it maybe not working, um, but you know, with all of the upsides and sort of de-risking it by looking at what other people had to say about it, like positive reviews, you know, paying five dollars so that you can have hours back, or maybe for some people multiple days back, uh, was a compelling value prop. And so I think that has to be the more most clear thing, in my opinion. But again, you know, this is something that I'm reasoning in hindsight. Like this is we we launched, and a lot of things we learned as we went. So it's very hard to do comparative analysis. Um, but at least for me as a consumer, you know, that's what it comes down to. Like, am I willing to pay for 
pay X amount for this. And so, you know, even in absence of sort of clear branding, and I think like branding is really, really important. In the early days, I think it's really um, overemphasized. Like no one knew what morning recovery was in the beginning. Like even the, we, get, we get obsessed. I get obsessed as a, as a uh, founder because my first thousand customers of community, you know, I, I'm so actively involved with them and I hear them. So I feel like, um, you know, we already have an established branding. And I, I, if I, if I deter away from it, that's like a soup that, that's, that's, um, a lot of all of our efforts sort of, uh, shifting to, to building something completely new. Uh, but in reality, in grand scheme of things, even, even today, 10 months later, uh, and actually six, six million revenue in, uh, most people don't know morning recovery. And so if we have to revisit and sort of revamp our branding, I don't think the loss is as big as, um, we think, I think there's like this, uh, this bias there. So, you know, if you're just kind of launching it, I think the general sort of default is no one knows your brand anyways. And I would rather overemphasize on experimenting the branding early on rather than trying to stick to it uh, with the sound cost bias that if you switch, like you're going to lose a lot of what you already gained, uh, which I don't think is true because to you, like that's your baby. That's what you think about. For most people, they just simply don't know what it is. Um, that's kind of how um, I do it. Yeah. I like that approach though, because it, it goes back to, to, to getting that feedback and really involving your community, involving the customers. And you, you're just basically saying, yeah, experiment with the branding in the beginning. And it sounds like what you really try to focus on was emphasizing the value prop and trying to answer that question. What is the promise that we're making? Are we delivering on it? And then making that very clear and then letting the customers kind of surround around that value prop. And then they, and then by just looking at the, the audience, and the customers that you've built, the branding kind of comes out of it. So once you have an, an understanding of who your customers are, who your demographic is, who the market is, what were the steps towards creating, to, to, to I guess, make that branding more concrete? Like what actual tasks or activities did you guys have to do to make sure that you guys solidified this new brand? Yeah, I mean, I think branding is more, a little bit more, it's a mix of art and science. And I think the, the biggest thing, especially for startup is that you have the luxury because you don't have that many customers early on uh, and hopefully you stay close to them. You can like hop on a call with them and just ask them. Uh, and that's what we did. Like our entire team, myself, my co-founder, um, we would email people, you know, for permission uh, based on surveys. And then we would just like hop on a call and talk to them. Uh, and we wanted to learn, understand for people that didn't like it, why? for people that kept buying us and, you know, referring other people, what do you like so much about this? And part of it was understanding who they were. Um, and you don't have to like ask very, very sort of direct functional, um, uh, you know, multiple choice type of question. Mm -hmm. It could be very open-ended and, and you'd be surprised how much they're willing to help you. Like for, for these consumers, like they're early, early adopters that are, that are sort of finding value in not just the product, but being the first ones to try this, like it's cool. They're, they're the first ones to back you in Indiegogo. And so when a founder especially reaches out to them and, you know, gives them the time of the day to um, hear their response, what I found was that um, instead of them being annoyed because it's kind of like, you know, free, <laughs> sort of, you know, get, giving away their, their time for free. But for many ways, like I, many, many, many times, um, they were very glad. And with many, many of my customers, um, what was supposed to be a five minute phone conversation became 20 minute, 30 minute, multiple 30 minute calls, even sometimes an hour, uh, you know, depending on how it went. And I think, you know, that's the benefit you have as a, as a startup is that not everything is at scale. You can do things that don't scale because, you know, clearly this isn't something you could probably do at this level uh, when you 10x your customer base. And so when you talk to them, I think you learn two things like um, clearly um, who they are, like wh what is their demographic? And then the two is just like, why are they buying this? Aside from the functional benefit, because it's the same for everyone. Functionally, you buy this for the same reason. When you go out and drink, um, you do this because you want to wake up, you know, uh, at the top of your game. We understand that. But just like emotionally, what resonated with you to buy this from the first place and have you come back? And we learned something very interesting. Demographic wise, it was very broad. Um, on average, our um, actual segment of uh, customer is, is in the late to uh, Middle, middle to late thirties. Uh, and then it, it, it sort of, it, it goes on like from the early twenties all the way to late fifties. 
which we thought was like odd in the beginning because we thought with this type of drink, maybe college students, fraternities and sororities in the U.S. Uh, would be the peak. Uh, but it actually turned out it was very broad and people yeah, were... Yeah, I feel like they don't, they might not need it, right? They recover, people in college recover a lot faster. And then the second thing is um, we found out, like we asked quick key questions like, well, how much alcohol do you normally consume, um, you know, with or without morning recovery? And generally, most of our consumers don't actually drink a lot, which was very bizarre to us. Like, why are you buying morning recovery when you're taking two glasses of wine? We don't understand. And, but for them, uh, I think with age, like and especially they have so much responsibility to take care of the next morning they have to wake up um, take care of their kids uh, prepare for their work their important presentation or go for a run or exercise uh, they just time is very valuable for them so for them paying five dollars so that even though they might only be very slightly tired the next day if they don't take this and not necessarily you know um, having to rest on bed for 24 hours um, even saving that time, being extra productive, uh, was a very important sort of uh, emotional thing for them. Being able to do more the next day of whatever it is that they love to do, and so we kind of realized that it wasn't really that what we were kind of selling um, wasn't really just about solving hangover so you can drink more. It was really about empowering you to be at your best the next day, so that even when you do consume alcohol, whether it's little or a lot. Um, we sort of guarantee that you're at your uh, your best self the next day without missing a beat. Uh, and it became very clear to us that this was more about people buying it to be productive rather than um, preventing hangovers. And so um, we kind of realized that that's actually really good for us. For for one thing, is that we don't just focus on heavy drinking drinking consumption uh, events and heavy drinkers. This is much more broader, has much more appeal, or at the potential of it. Um, and so after thinking about it, um, yeah, we pivoted into really focusing on that angle. And luckily, morning recovery, when you take the first two letters, spells more. And we realized that everyone wanted to do different things, do more of different things the next day. Some people wanted to run, take care of their kids, go to work. But what was very clear, and that was a common theme, was that they wanted to do more, be able to do more of what they love. And so it just like kept coming, coming like that phrase of doing more. Uh, kept coming back to us. So we just thought, hey, this is great. Like this kind of aligns with morning recovery uh, in terms of the actual phrase. Let's own uh, the phrase of being able to do more. Like what we're offering is a drink that helps you, empower you to be at your best so you can do more of what you love. And the next skews of the products that we're going to launch that's not related to alcohol, um, it's still going to be in the same realm of empowering you to be at your best physical and mental state so you can do more of what you love. And so, you know, um, I mean, you know, based on what you learn from your customers, there's, you can, de it definitely filters down to uh, what type of brand you should build. But I don't think it's very scientific. Like we could have probably taken two to three different um, alternative approach, but I think it, it just kind of helps you narrow down um, once you actually take the time to talk to customers, especially early on. At least that's how we did it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I think it's also important to note that you need to, going back to what you are saying earlier, you need to have a compelling product, an interesting product, or a compelling story, which makes people excited to be involved and excited to be a part of what you're working on. You have a very boring product, very boring story, then maybe they won't be as interested in being involved. But I think having that, again, that that, that great product and in a, uh, piquing people's interest, they, they want to be involved in something that, that's different in their lives, right? So I think it's important that you nail that part down first before you, you you begin down anything else, which is something you guys obviously did. So that um, after initial Indiegogo success, that that going back to that million dollars in the first three months, where did the rest of that come from? How were you able to to continue the the revenue growth from there? Yeah. So after Indiegogo, um, it ended. We decided to launch our own e-commerce platform. We obviously chose Shopify. Um, first few weeks were very very low on revenue we were doing like a couple of hundreds a day people just didn't know where to find us right like indiegogo had that exposure landing page once you come to our own website uh, we never promoted it so it took some time but um i think ultimately it took down to uh lots of uh iterations and a b testing i think this is a this is probably the first time building the company where my skill set um actually uh, made an impact which was um you know i did growth work and so I looked at this as purely a funnel. Um, how do I optimize this funnel so that I can get 
uh, as much throughput as possible. And that means um, at like at scale, what's what's the lowest sort of CAC that I can get into, which is like a customer acquisition cost. Uh, and so early on when it was just digital and e-commerce, the beauty is that you can measure everything. So we didn't do anything offline marketing that wasn't attributable, uh, that I couldn't attribute back towards um, um, the actual revenue. So everything we did was performance advertising. Um, we just, we we understood that, well, we have a six pack, so that's the minimum order you can get. We kind of knew what our average order value is based on what people bought on Indiegogo. You know, not 100% people buy six pack, some people buy 12 pack, 24 pack. And so we can sort of, um, estimate pretty accurately with Shopify what's going to be the range of average order uh, value that we're going to generate from a single customer, which is like what is that final revenue that's going to come into our bank. And then when you subtract um, all of the cost of goods, fulfillment, um, you know, whatever other cost that goes into it, you know, you get your gross gross profit. And then from there, we kind of view that as, okay, this is the profit that we're going to take home if somebody organically came. Now, we're willing to spend advertising money um, to, to break even, at least that was our thinking at the time. We didn't raise our series A yet. So it's not like we had more money to sort of overspend and, and sort of at the, at the, at the sake of growth, uh, we have to actually be sustainable. Uh, but given our sort of margin, which is we make a single bottle for about 40 cents, we sell it for like, like five bucks, which is like, which is high, but it's actually not abnormal in a drink, uh, beverage industry. This is like what 90 to 95% margin. Um, when we calculate everything, our AOV came down to be about $45 with everything gone. We were making about $30. So that gave us a $30 per acquisition customer acquisition uh, that we can play with. Then that's a lot, just, right? That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot, but it's not uncommon. And, uh, and we then took it and just went with it, just AB tested everything. We started with just simple things like phrases, um, creatives, but then for us, like to us, that was like a very minor, optimization, we were really trying to find what's like the real arbitrage opportunities that we have uh, because everyone's doing the same thing on Facebook. Um, we found two things that were really compelling that work for us after testing. One is we found out that the medium is the most important source of acquisition, not the actual content. Like we can say all these things that we want from the brand page, but it appears like an ad. Like, of course, we're going to say good things about morning recovery. We are the morning recovery. And so we would actually pay third-party Facebook groups and pages that already had millions and millions of followers um, to write uh, posts um, or anything that we want we wanted, but in a very neutral way. And then we would we would we would pay them uh, almost like an affiliate fee. And so we had things like trending on Kickstarter um, was something that um, was a page that um, you know promoted um, some of our content and and. We found out that they do just like five, six times better in conversion, which then leads to much lower CAC um, than if we were to say the exact same thing from our page, uh, which was interesting. And we just found out that it, it made sense, of course, you know, after we did it, because um, it's, a, it's a skeptical product by nature. Um, and if we advertise it, it's even more skeptical, the more that we sort of neutralize it and, uh, and sort of work with third party trusted sources, uh, it just did better. Second thing was um, directing people to our website um, versus directing people to our sort of um, press articles like Business Insider. Um, the latter was much better, which and which seems counterintuitive because instead of taking people to point of purchase, we're now taking them away, and there's an extra layer in the funnel. But what we found out is that people need to be able to trust this, and you need to lower the barrier of skepticism. And so when they go to Business Insider article that talks about how a Tesla engineer created this. Um, we found out that then they go to Google, search for this, and then buy it at a much higher end-to-end -end conversion than if we were to directly somehow get you to land on our website, which then they would just bounce out. I like that. So the top of your funnel is building trust because it's a product that is not easily understood right away, right? It's not like a t-shirt you're selling or something that people instantly get in their minds. It's that first step is to build trust. And, and to do that, you have some kind of neutral party in in this in the two examples you gave. is either some kind of publication that wrote about you, some, some publication that has some uh, uh, that people already trust to write about you or in a Facebook group. So these, these um, well, you mentioned that you want them to write about you in a neutral way. Can you say more about this? Like why neutral rather than, you know, in a, a more positive uh, review? We tried it. We tried both. And for, what, for whatever reason, neutral did a lot better. Uh, what we kind of found out was that um, it, it's a fine balance, right? Like it's still sponsored by us. 
And so um, the more we made it seem very organic. Um, and and I, I, so, so I wouldn't say the word neutral. It was definitely more positive, but it wasn't sort of the over, overly blown, uh, like a review of it. It was more like, guess what? Like, guess what's trending out there? Check this product out. Like that kind of tone. I see. Um, yeah. And so, you know, with, with digital uh, funnels, I think the, the beauty is that you can have a lot of strong opinions uh, and that's great. That's probably going to, you know, um, kickstart your experiments much faster than other people in the right way. Uh, but I think the key is just like super fast execution and just like validating your hypothesis because like everything can be measurable. And so we tried so many things. I think in the first month of our Shopify launch, the actual amount of different variations of funnels that we've launched and tested is probably over 200, definitely over 200. So how, how do you manage all this? How do you keep track of like what, what experiments you're running? You know, like at the core, like there would be, you know, five or six big different funnels that we would test, testing something on Facebook, testing something on Google, testing something elsewhere like Instagram. Um, and then, you know, between those, we would then branch it out on Facebook. We would try it on our, our, uh, our page versus we would try it on a different group. And then within that, the content is varied. Sometimes we would try this copy versus that. So like it all just adds up to this like massive uh, amount of, um, um, tests, we don't have enough like budget to simultaneously test 200 things and get statistically significant results. So, you know, we would start by like two, three, four at a time. And then we would just like take out the ones that just didn't perform as well. And we would sort of keep trying to beat our, the most sort of the, the most efficient funnel at the time. Uh, so like in terms of how do we do it? I mean, uh, again, like, I think this is where like our skill set came in handy. Like it was, um, at the time we also recruited one of our friends who who ran e-commerce at Facebook Canada, which is this is what he does for e-commerce companies. Um, so between him and myself and my friend at Uber, we would just manage it. Like we were acting like a uh, media agency out there because you know, like my friend had the skill sets. Like that's what he was doing at Facebook, but not on the agency side, but on the actual Facebook platform side. Um, I've done similar things, just building funnels, and so we would manage it. And um, the great thing is, like because we were using existing advertising platforms like Google and Facebook. We didn't have to build any of the actual infrastructure. We just use their tools, advertising tools. We, we look at it, we measure it. We know our Google Analytics on our website, so we understand the conversion. Uh, it integrates perfectly with Shopify, so with every advertising, we can actually see the attribute on revenue. So uh, it just makes things really, really simple. Um, and yeah, I think this is just something that most people, um, I'm sure, you know, all successful e-commerce companies do, right? It's performance advertising. You measure your LTV, you measure your CAC, you scale this as efficiently as possible. But even for like beginners, I think this is something that um, it's just very uh, easy to get started. Even if you don't get to the most optimal funnel state uh, between one versus another that you have ideas on what might work best, you can simply try it and then um, figure out. And if you have enough of gross, gross profit margin, the amount of advertising that you spend um, you're actually not losing money, right? Like you do need upfront capital investment. So when we launched an Indiegogo, the great thing is like, guess what? We made $250,000. So, you know, that's, that's money that we can use. Uh, but because we were, we understood our average order value when we spend these ads, yes, like there's some, there's some time lag where if we spend, let's say $10,000 on advertising in that week, we don't make it right away. Um, but we do make it uh, pretty soon. Um, and then, so it goes back to our bank. So really we're not losing money. And so that, that just kind of allows you to sort of, um, be able to, uh, you know, you know, test, uh, more frequently right now, we actually spend more, uh, than our, um, gross profit, um, deliberately because, you know, we raise more money, but I think even if you don't raise money, um, there's some level that you can play with. And if the margins are much smaller, all it means is that, uh, you probably have a little bit more lesser room to experiment with. So maybe you can't do 200 experiments like us, but, you can certainly, you know, start with couple. And I think uh, even just like optimizing at a smaller frequency is very powerful. Awesome. So morningrecoverydrink.com is a website. What's next for you guys? What do you guys want to, what are some big milestones you want to hit next? Yeah, so uh, two big things. One is uh, we're, we're finally getting into retail world and wholesale. Um, right now we're across about 400 different stores uh, nationwide in the U.S., which sounds a lot, but in grand scheme of things, still very small in the retail world. Um, but ultimately when we view our product, uh, we think drinking is very serendipitous event. You go to the bar, you know, maybe you would go to different nightlife venues. Um, not always planned. Not everything's a big mm -hmm. night, but you simply go there. And so we want our drinks to be there. 
Uh, we want our bartenders to sort of uh, upsell this, encourage people to drink it. We think it's a much better and healthier alternative than Red Bull, uh, which is our things that are being always upsold in these places. Um, and so I think it's a matter of when, uh, not an if, the retail world. And we're finally starting to uh, explore there uh, and really just like learn and navigate. The second thing for us is actually international. So surprisingly, Indiegogo, when we launched, 35% of the sales came internationally, uh, mostly set around Western Europe. Uh, like people are basically places where people speak English. Um, but we can't just launch there because every compli- uh, there's a different compliance rules for every country. So for the similar reasons why, even though I'm Canadian, uh, we don't actually sell this in, in Canada because uh, the regulation is different. Uh, and so we can't launch everywhere at once. It, it's going to come down to understanding both sort of, um, you know, the resources it's going to take to get regulations in that country versus uh, what our existing demand is there and, you know, potentially what is the upper bound sort of uh, market opportunity. And we're going to go sort of one at a time and start unlocking international markets um, because I think that's huge for us. And even today, like we have thousands of customers that are sort of emailing us as to, you know, why can I buy this at my country? Um, so I think those are the big things for us. Very cool. So even though you, you guys have already generated $6 million revenue so far, sounds like just the beginning for you. Lots of growth ahead. Thank you again so much for your time, Cson. Thank you. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. Most of the content that, that we now put on Instagram is actually customer created. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.